Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. There's no doubt COVID-19 had an impact on the financial lives of every single Canadian. Well, while it also had an impact on government finances, it revealed existing gaps in government accountability to the Canadians it serves. It also widened that gap. William Robson is the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. In his commentary, co-authored by Nicholas Dahir, Fiscal COVID, the pandemic's impact on government finances and accountability in Canada, he points out that stewardship of public funds during the pandemic was lax, and that will hurt Canadians in the future. Neil Moss is a reporter with The Hill Times, and this summer wrote that lack of oversight continues today, with more than $30 billion in spending estimates not reviewed by House committees. Bill and Neil join us now. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bill, government's not being completely transparent about spending and expenses isn't exactly a new topic for the CDO. You've been raising the alarm over this issue during your entire tenure at the Institute. It has been a, a regular focus of my attention. Uh, the nature of the problem has changed a little over time. And in fact, in, in many respects, for good reasons, with governments having become uh, likelier to use consistent accounting, uh, likelier to produce documents that get clean audits. I mean, there, there's there's a lot of good news over the years. Uh, having said that, though, there are some persistent gaps. Uh, governments often produce budgets late. Uh, the budgets and financial statements may not match in various ways. That makes it very hard for people to compare plans to attentions or, or results to plans. And in the time of COVID, when uh, I would argue the stakes got a lot higher because there was so much uh, money being borrowed and spent. Uh, we actually saw some serious backsliding, including uh, the the federal government simply never producing a budget all at all in, in the year 2020, which was uh, uh, something that never happened before. Uh, I, I was very interested, uh, and, and Neil, I'm not trying to get ahead of you on this, but uh, uh, then... Uh, looking at what Neil was doing, tracking the process by which uh, the estimates get approved or don't get approved. Uh, he's got another whole other dimension to, to looking at some of these gaps between what uh, governments are doing and, and what citizens and what legislators can know about what they're doing and how much they can control it. Yeah, Neil, your article for The Hill Times points out that even today, five House committees in a joint House-Senate uh, committee it didn't perform the reviews of almost $31 billion in spending estimates, and you call this a continuing trend of MPs eschewing their financial oversight powers. To what do you attribute this? It's kind of an interesting dilemma in, in that case. That there's got no rhyme or reason. MPs either don't seem interested to, to move the demo's path to accountability. Uh, you know, you look at the industry committee get getting more than a dozen department agencies to review worth uh, uh, you know, more than $12.5 billion around. Uh, they're, they're, they haven't taken a chance in this parliament to do a single uh, review of their mains. Uh, why that is, they're, they're not saying at this point, but a lot of people point to that the gap between the mains being put forward uh, in early March before the budget gets put forward. So there's this gap in where the new spending isn't uh, isn't attached to it, uh, and and some the PBO's past and present look at at that uh, that gap as as a reason why MPs are choosing to to issue that responsibility they have. One of the things that we look at in our report card is whether the main estimates. So for people who don't follow this uh, uh, sort of day by day obsessively, 
the main estimates are at the beginning of the fiscal year, the, the things that the legislature's uh, parliament, in the case of the federal government, uh, are, are, are going to vote on to authorize the spending. It really makes sense for those things to come out simultaneously with the budget. And in the case of the federal government, as Neil just said, they, they don't. Uh, and that's actually weird. There are all kinds of reasons people offer about why they can't or shouldn't. Uh, and yet in many provinces, they do. And in those provinces, uh, the, the, the members of the provincial legislature have the ability to look at the budget and look at the estimates and kind of fit the, fit the picture together to see how the estimates fit within the fiscal plan. So it is a bit odd in the federal government's case uh, that the um, estimates don't come out along with the budget. And it, it's an obstacle to accountability. It makes it harder for MPs. I'm not giving this excuse on their behalf. They ought to do their job anyway. But it does make it harder for MPs to evaluate what they're seeing in the estimates because it isn't necessarily uh, produced coherently with the fiscal plan that they see in the budget. I wonder, though, how much of this is populist politics. You know, Neil points out that the NDP accused the Conservatives of slow-rolling committee work to the point where the fiduciary responsibilities of MPs had to be abandoned just to meet a deadline. Neil, you may want to come in on that first, but uh, I I would point the finger in a somewhat... Uh, I mean, yes, yes. In, in terms of populist politics, I think what we're seeing here, it's partly the populist impulse uh, at a given moment. Is this is stuff top of mind for Canadians? Well, certainly during COVID, it wasn't. Um, but uh, over time, uh, I think that MPs have a job to do that they they really need to take more seriously because along with uh, the populist aspect of it, which may ebb and flow, we don't know, there's a very pronounced tendency in recent years for things to become a lot more centralized uh, in, in the PMO, if you're talking about the federal government in previous offices, if you're talking about uh, provincial or territorial governments. And I think that can sometimes make the job feel a lot harder to do, if not hopeless, because increasingly the job of the MPs on the government side is, is just to support whatever the government has announced. Uh, and uh, I think that can be a little bit demoralizing as well. But we shouldn't make excuses for them if, if, if parliamentarians, uh, if legislators aren't uh, actually scrutinizing spending, then the whole basis of representative government that they're supposed to be stewards of public funds is kind of out the window. That is an aspect where you see a lot of MPs are looking at this as, as a low thing on the, on the party list that we're going to get to it if we can get to it, uh, where legislation that is more something for their base to support uh, takes the manager saw that in, in the immigration committee at the last cycle that accusing the, the conservatives of filibustering while the, the liberals and MVP wanted to, to move this piece of legislation forward. Um, and, and then they ran out of time to, to get to get their mains done. Uh, so certainly this, their, their MBs are viewing this very low on the priority list while those, those on the, uh, financial oversight side say the, they, they have that order backwards as it should be right on the top of the list. Bill, in your commentary, you write that the federal government's borrowing during COVID-19 is enough to impair its capacity to deliver services in the future. To what degree? Well, the, me the, the measure of debt that we typically uh, talk about with respect to the federal government and the one that they highlight in their budgets and their financial statements is their accumulated deficit. And that's the uh, amount by which over the entire existence of the federal government, uh, their revenues have fallen short of, of their spending. Um, it's important to, to note because sometimes people 
uh, talk about some of the deficits financing investment. Uh, the federal government deficits don't finance investment. Uh, capital spending by uh, all of our senior governments, um, it, it gets uh, recorded as an asset when they, when they build a building or a road or what have you, and then they write it off over time. So when we look at that accumulated deficit number, that is basically what we consumed uh, beyond what we were willing to pay for at the time. And the motivation of putting these financial statements together, uh, it's a little bit similar to to a household. Do you have positive net worth or do you have negative net worth? If you have positive net worth, then you're going to have a better year, uh, better years in the future because you're going to have the resources to finance what you want to do without making additional sacrifices. If you got negative net worth, it's the opposite situation. You're going to have to make sure that you're more than covering your, your current costs. And for governments, it's the same. The measure of uh, a government's capacity to deliver services is, is is supposed to be captured in that bottom line. It's not a perfect measure. It's actually by world standards pretty good. And so when when we saw the federal government run those enormous deficits, uh, part of it was understandable. Uh, you don't want to suddenly raise taxes in the middle of a crisis like that. You don't want to cut spending on support programs uh, when the economy is going into a hole like it did uh, over over COVID. Uh, but when it went on for as long as it did and when there wasn't any plan to rebuild the government's fiscal capacity, I think that is a source of concern. And it just amplified my uh, unhappiness with the sketchy information that was available from the federal government and from many other governments. So, Bill, maybe I'll, I'll test your blood pressure medication here. But at the start of the pandemic, the federal government didn't present a budget, as you point out. Some provinces delayed until later into the fiscal year, likely waiting for Fed money. Shouldn't the worst health care crisis in a century warrant a pass on handing in the homework on time? <laughs> uh, the world wars didn't, so I don't see why COVID should. Uh, and as, as as the timing worked out, it really isn't an excuse. Uh, the fiscal years of Canadian governments begin, the senior governments begin on April 1st. Uh, you should not be passing a budget at midnight on March the 31st. Uh, you ought to be passing your budget well in advance of the beginning of the fiscal year so that Parliament or, or the provincial legislature has an opportunity to scrutinize the plan before you start spending money. So every government ought to have produced a budget uh, well before March. And the pandemic, as people will remember, I'm sure, uh, uh, started in, in the middle of March, the official declaration and the beginning of the lockdowns. They all should have produced budgets by then. There's nothing wrong when something very major happens with a government uh, producing a second budget at some point during the year. Uh, we haven't talked about supplementary estimates, but those are estimates that Parliament or, or a provincial legislature would approve uh, after the main estimates. Circumstances do change. We all understand that. But every government should have had something in place by then. As it turns out, with the timing of the pandemic, that would have given us a very clean baseline against which to measure what happened afterwards, and that would have given us a clearer picture than we currently have in many cases uh, about what the impact of the pandemic was. Uh, but no, there's no excuse for not having produced a budget before the beginning of the fiscal year, and every government that did that uh, would, would get a, a high mark from me on that basis, and the federal government should have produced one uh, even if it had been late, rather than just deciding they weren't going to do it at all. That's never happened before, and it sets a very bad precedent. Neil, you're a journalist. You understand deadlines. You give them any leeway? It, it certainly, certainly when you have something deemed adopted by May 31st, uh, and in some cases, you're, you're allowed, the, the official officers, you can get an extension on the date and still not get to that 
get to that look. It certainly is a, a troubling situation that speaks to a, a lack of desire to 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 reach that deadline. And you know, you can go back to 2018 when when there was a pilot project that put in place to to have the budget to uh, come out. To, it was, I think it was February 27th. Then you you put the mains uh, a little in the past. I think it was mid March, if I remember correctly, which game brought those two together. Still, the that, that pilot project didn't quite work out. It eventually was abandoned. Uh, so there there's a lot of push from from the opposition to bring these two things together. Uh, in the this if that is if this is actually something that they will push on and they will get to the review where right now obviously it's a situation that isn't working for anyone where you have fifteen percent of the the main estimates not being reviewed by the committee so that there is a desire to get it fixed there is no agreement to to what that fix will be uh, and and really there is no urgency to move towards a fix. So Bill, if I'm renovating my house. And my contractor tells me there's unexpected rot in the walls. I'm going to have no choice but to spend the extra money to clean it up, even if the federal government estimates didn't match the actuals. What could be done about it during a black swan event like COVID-19? Well, they they never do. Uh, there are always events. Maybe the economy is stronger or weaker than you expect us. So that affects your revenues and some of your spending. Uh, lately, we've had uh, wildfires. Those are very expensive for the provinces affected. Uh, it's all a matter of how transparent you are in explaining uh, what it was that happened and and what you did about it. Uh, in the case of COVID, I think we all would expect that governments would have spent a lot more on healthcare in general and on COVID-specific uh, uh, measures in particular. Uh, we knew that the federal government was uh, putting a lot of transfer payments into the economy, the CERB, the wage subsidy, and other things to help keep the economy afloat. Um I'm not passing judgment uh, in, in, in making these criticisms on the wisdom of any of those things. Uh, there's a lot of room for criticism of how long things went on for or whether they, they were targeted properly. Uh, this is just about the transparency with which people were able to understand what was going on. The federal government's an interesting case because when they uh, started with the CERB and the wage subsidy, they were initially providing very regular updates on the amount of money that was uh, flowing out. Uh, but that stopped partway through. And at the end of the year, if you're looking at their public accounts, uh, it was surprisingly tough to see what kind of impact COVID uh, had. They never presented a summary table showing all the various impacts. And so, uh, yes, plans will never work out exactly. Uh, they don't uh, here at the CDL Institute. They don't in business. Uh, uh, anybody who does a household budget and you mentioned their innovations uh, will know that things never go exactly according to plan. But when your contractor gives you a bill that's different from what you had agreed to in the first place, uh, you have every right to know why it differed and to ask your contractor uh, about what it was specifically that happened and to make your judgment of whether you got value for the money. So we at least ought to get the information that would enable us to ask those questions and make those judgments. Ever done a house renovation, Neil? I have not. In terms of actually getting to the, uh, getting to the, for these committees to do their job is when they're taking the approach that they are to just have those numbers being deemed adopted. Uh, one other complaint you're left at is it just doesn't go into enough detail. You you have the voted on numbers, uh, which is a couple line items, doesn't list what programs this go to. You can read, uh, read that numbers with the departmental plans to get a bit more insight in terms of how this money is actually being spent. 
uh, but but not to not to give the MPs too much of a pass for for not doing this, but but there there could be a solution to the problem by for, from on the on the government side from the Treasury Board to to put forward a program where they can vote with some detail and maybe if, if they have that detail they will have more you know uh, agency in the process and would would actually want to uh, vote because because clearly right now you have a broken system where where these uh, six committees are just saying. We have other. We have better work to do, and uh, uh, someone else uh, can do it, and we'll we'll just move forward. If I could just uh, underline uh, a, a point that's implicit in what Neil is saying, uh, the MPs have these powers. Uh, it's up to them to use them or not. Lately, we seem to be seeing a lot of MPs who are willing uh, not to use these powers, and maybe this partly reflects just uh, not just the sort of populist. Uh, uh, times or or the distractions of COVID, but the fact that in Canada our fiscal position has been very solid for a long time. It hasn't been since the late 1990s that we were really worried about the amount of debt that we were incurring and the amount of interest we were paying on it. Uh, I think perhaps there, the time has come when there's going to be a slightly higher imperative for MPs to pay attention to these things. Uh, some of the MPs who may have wanted to but felt that it wasn't really very exciting work and not not high profile enough uh, maybe they'll find that there's a bit more attention coming to it, certainly with these report cards and, and Neil's reporting. I, I think there are some forces pointing in that direction. So I think there's a good chance that over the next few years, uh, there will be a higher profile for this work. The people that are taking it seriously are going to get a bit more rewarded for taking it seriously. And MPs might start to exercise more of the powers that they currently have, uh, but lately don't seem as interested in using. So then if restoring fiscal health requires discipline, what does that discipline look like? There are many things that we could say, and here we're getting into the wisdom uh, of the programs uh, rather than just the, the information that we have. But one of the things that I would uh, uh, put right at the head of the list is the huge expansion uh, in the federal government's uh, pay bay bill. Uh, there's been a lot of hiring. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, salary increases. And in many of the areas that we look to the federal government just to do a, a, a good job of like running a passport office, uh, you know, collecting our taxes and processing the payments. Uh, we haven't seen the kind of improvement that is commensurate with the increased cost uh, of the government. Uh, uh, so let me just stop right there and say that uh, when MPs are looking at uh, federal government expenses, uh, one of the things they should be looking at is just the operating costs of the federal government itself because they have gone way up. Uh, and it's not clear that we're getting as good value for money as we did when they were lower. And to add to that, it's it's not you know you don't see a one party problem here. It's it's up to the committees to to move the motion to study these estimates. Uh, and, and the fact that these motions aren't being moved, not the motions are being voted against or being voted down. It's no one, no single one person on committee decides this is worthwhile. And you have a committee of of twelve people deciding this. Uh, for a number of years, and at committees like the industry committee that that has billions of dollars to study, and and not a single MP would say this is worthwhile doing. That that speaks to a bigger problem and brings up questions of of why you know it's not a it's not a legal platform to, to not do that. Serve our NDP block. They, there is a, some desire from from that committee, obviously, to say it's not worth our time. You know, you think of, of, of the natural tendency for a government to want to get its program through. 
Uh, so on the face of it, it would look like, you know, governments might want, of whatever stripe, might be impatient with any kind of procedural obstacles to getting their spending approved. Uh, but after the end of the year, when the Auditor General uh, uh, looks at programs and puts out these often very damning value for money uh, assessments, uh, they, those could be very uh, embarrassing for governments. And, and from the point of view of a taxpayer or a program recipient, it's all after the fact. You know, the damage is done. The auditor is, is picking over the, the evidence of the damage. Uh, why not have a more careful scrutiny up front uh, that might help you avoid some of those problems? So, Neil, not to put you in an uncomfortable position as, a, as an independent journalist who has a, a responsibility to be unbiased, but for the policymakers listening to this conversation today, what do you see as the actionable takeaway? What should they be listening for? So, I guess there would be some recipes that they could follow. One is to listen to the complaints from the, those PBO officers past the present and saying that the system as a whole needs to be fixed, but but also not to, not to pass the blame on the MPs themselves for not doing their work. It's this is their principal financial fiduciary role to 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 look at these estimates, and they're deciding not to. So, in, central to the problem is the MPs not choosing not to do their job. But but there could be fixes to the system as a whole that may give added benefit for MPs choosing to to look at these uh, like like uh, as we talked about in the past about when the budgets come out when the mains come out in relation to the budget so those two documents can be seen as one. One thing that would also be helpful if people would be if people were a little more willing when they see numbers they don't understand to put a hand up and say I don't understand these numbers. Um, governments ought to be presenting. Uh, MPs, they ought to be presenting everybody uh, with budgets and estimates and with financial statements that a, a motivated person who can add and subtract but isn't an expert in accounting uh, can understand. And I think part of the difficulty that we face often with legislative approval or neglect uh, of budgets and, and of estimates is that uh, people, when when they see numbers that they can't reconcile, instead of uh, putting their hand up and saying, I need some numbers that I can make sense of. They just say, you know, maybe they're distracted. Maybe they don't want to admit that they can't figure it out because they think that if they were smart, they won't look smart. Um, I, I think it would be a good idea for MPs just to be a little quicker to say, give me numbers I can understand. Uh, we've we've seen big improvements in budgeting and the, and the presentations of estimates over time. And partly that was because people just demanded information that was easier to take in. And when it's needlessly complicated, when it's presented, as Neil's been emphasizing, uh, you know, not 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 synchronized, uh, or when the accounting is different, and that's often the case, uh, they're perfectly within their rights to say, "Give me something that's cleaner than this." Uh, and if they demand it, they can get it. I mean, they're in peace; they're powerful. But Bill, they got into politics because they didn't think there would be math. <laughs> well. Uh, th that is undoubtedly true of many people. People have all kinds of uh, aptitudes as well as motivations. But there are a lot of elected representatives, federally, provincially, in the territories who do care about this stuff. Uh, there are people on the public accounts committees who are putting in a lot of hours, uh, looking them over. Uh, if there's an auditor reservation, there are people who are paying attention to that. So I, I think there are people who want to do a better job. At the moment, they're not feeling very well rewarded for that. Uh, but even when we do our fiscal accountability report cards, we get lots of feedback from people who say, well, have you have you thought of suggesting this? 
or or this is how it works and this is the situation we're confronting. So there are people there who are trying to do a better job. And uh, with the reporting that Neil's doing and with the report cards that we're issuing, we're just, you know, I, I hope that we're creating a better environment for the people who want to do a better job. Always the diplomat, Bill. Thank you so much. Neil, thank you as well. Thank you. Bill Robson is the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. Read his commentary, Fiscal COVID, the Pandemic's Impact on Government Finances and Accountability in Canada at cdhow.org. Neil Moss is a reporter with The Hill Times and leads the newspaper's annual Top 50 list of foreign policy influencers. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.